You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorist and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm honoured to be joined by Hans-Jakob Schindler, a senior director at CEP and the head of the CEP Berlin office. He's also a member of the Advisory Council of the Global Diplomatic Initiative in London and a lecturer at the Academy for Security and Business in Essen. Hans is an extremely experienced diplomat, uh, manager and analyst with enormous experience in crisis management, government, private sector liaison and security. And through his work with CEP, Hans engages in a a really wide variety um, of counter-extremism related topics, which range from extremist narratives and ideologies to terrorist financing, extremist recruitment tactics, new technologies and much more. Hans, it's a pleasure to have you join the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, Lucinda, thank you so much for having me on. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be on the podcast with you and to have a conversation with you after a while. So I'm very much looking forward to today. Oh, likewise. So Hans, I think um, I know we're going to delve into the whole area of terrorist financing, which is extremely relevant and topical at the moment. But First, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about you, because um, as I said in the introduction, you have you've really had a fascinating career to date. And I think it'll be really interesting, uh, certainly for me and I think for our listeners, just to, to learn a little bit more about your professional background. I know that you have worked, as I said, in the private sector, in diplomacy, in government agencies and so on. But perhaps you could give us a flavor of how you embarked on your career in the counterterrorism space, you know, your, your academic background and what led you on this path. Well, thank you. It was basically um, less by design and more by being the right place at the right time how this thing started. So I studied international relations in Germany and the US and in Israel and focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, and wrote my master thesis and my PhD thesis at St. Andrews University, the Center for the Study of Terrorism Political Violence at the time when Bruce Hoffman, Magnus Randstrup and Paul Wilkinson were teaching there. So it was quite an exciting place to be at that time. And obviously, if you'd speak about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and being interested in the political identity building, especially on the radical edges of that discussion, the issue of terrorism really comes up very quickly. And so after I finished my academic studies uh, with a small stint as a managing editor of an academic journal of international relations, but I finished up my PhD, I uh, joined the federal German government in an intelligence-focused role, both in analytic as well as operational capabilities, because since the end of 2000, at about the time when I finished my PhD, the German government had identified international terrorism coming from extremist Islamist ideologies as a direct threat to German security because in December 2020, the German and French security forces had foiled a massive uh, attack on the Christmas market in Strasbourg. And the Algerian terror group, which was linked to what later became uh, AQIM, um, operated inside Germany. So it was a kind of a wake-up call for the German government, and they had to 
very quickly ramp up their capabilities and expertise on international terrorism. And at that time, coming straight out of St. Andrews, I was pretty much the only individual in Germany that had an advanced degree in international terrorism. And so within a couple of months, uh, in spring 2001, I was recruited and that's how I joined. Wow, that that certainly was incredible timing. I mean, obviously, very shortly after your appointment, then the world was rocked by the 9-11 attacks, which sort of changed everything globally in the world of counterterrorism and counter extremism. So where did you go from there? How did how did the 9-11 event impact on your career within the, the German system? Yeah, so when I joined, I was immediately made responsible for um, the structures of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Central Asia. So this is spring 2001. And then following the attack, of course, Germany had a particular responsibility to become a very active member of that international coalition that the US and the UN were building following the attack, because as you may recall, the heads of uh, the attack teams, all of them, studied and lived in Germany and planned significant aspects of that attack while they were on trip in Germany. Therefore, you know, my work, which had focused prior to the attack on primarily identifying, mapping out um, the terrorism camps and the financial flows to and from those terrorism camps in Afghanistan of Al-Qaeda then became very relevant, obviously, after Afghanistan and those very same camps were attacked. And so not just for the German, but also for the international coalition fighting there. And since uh, we were dealing with a very quickly changing, constantly evolving uh, threat situation during the war, I developed something called the scenario-based reporting, which basically gives the political decision makers at any juncture, you know, kill or not kill bin Laden, bomb or not bomb that camp, arrest or let this individual go, options of what will happen if they do uh, take door A or door B, and what would be then the necessary follow-on decision. So it was quite an exciting time being there, especially in the early phase of that war, which was primarily at that time also focused on al-Qaeda, not just on uh, building a new government in Afghanistan. Uh, Was your work at that stage, was it quite multilateralist? Were you working closely with others with similar skill sets from other missions? I was still in Germany. I was still in Germany, but obviously um, being the guy in Germany responsible for that issue meant I was constantly in touch with other guys of my of my persuasion in other countries uh, in preparation of the attack and during the initial stages of the attack where we exchanged a lot of information and you know no one has the whole picture so it was multilateral but I was still you know working in Germany and for the German government and then in Afghanistan for the German government mm-hmm. and and then that led you to a later posting to Tehran. I think you you were responsible for uh, political affairs. Uh, you advised the German ambassador in Tehran. That was, I suppose, a, an interesting follow-on from the role that you had in Germany during the war. Well, yes. I mean, I did this in Germany and in Afghanistan in 2005, and then was posted in Iran. First of all, I mean, being in Iran is a neighboring country of Afghanistan, so it wasn't that far away, and being responsible for the contacts to the security intelligence forces in Afghanistan as the German diplomat gave me, of course, a particular role. And the time that I was in in Iran between 2005 and 11, of course, was for German diplomats in particular, quite an interesting time because uh, soon after I arrived, exactly 48 hours later, Ahmadinejad was elected president. And about six weeks later, he decided uh, that he would like now to deny the Holocaust, which made 
German diplomacy in Iran that much more difficult. But also from 2005 onwards, if you recall, um, the efforts of what it was then called the E3, so the UK, France, Germany, after the suggestion of the then Foreign Minister Fischer, really ramped up the effort to find a diplomatic solution to the issue of the Iranian nuclear dossier, something that is still with us today. So, you know, that was also not an uninteresting issue to work on. And I learned a lot about sanctions and the Iranian economy when I was there. But also there were, you know, two particularly difficult security situations that Iran hasn't really experienced since. Uh, that was once in 2006, the reaction to the Mohammed Khatoun publications um, in Europe where you know, the entire embassy, the Danish embassy was burned down as a reaction. It was quite a big security incident for us and the diplomatic corps at the time. But also then even more significantly between 2009 and 10, the contested presidential elections in Iran where the Green Movement emerged. And what is a little bit faded from public memory is that this was one of the first protest movements more or less exclusively organized online. And it had all the hallmarks and all the aspects of other protest movements in the same region later on, which then are now collectively called Arab Spring. But the Iranians, the Green Movement was first. And during because they were first, we saw the explosion of the tools that the other protest movements used afterwards. So the Tor browser was all of a sudden developed to support the Green Movement in Iran. And you had encrypted messaging services all of a sudden coming onto the market to support the Green Movement in Iran. Uh, but also the strategic use of citizen journalism was the first time that journalism was not done but exclusively by professional journalists about the protests, but primarily about uh, by the protesters themselves who shot video and, and, and audio. So all of these things that we grapple with today really emerged on, on the center stage of world politics during that time of the Green Movement. And of course, observing in the, these developments, as well as the, you know, being, this is part of my job at the time, the strategies and tactics on how the Iranian security intelligence forces slowly smothered the Green Movement, very different to what some of the Arab governments decided uh, to do only two years later in 2011 and following, was very impressive. And, you know, giving again advice to key decision makers in the German government was, of course, a very rewarding responsibility at the time. Mm. Uh, it's fascinating um, uh, to, to see how these movements uh, sprung up in North Africa, as you said, through the Arab Spring, but also this phenomenon is, you know, it's a big part of how extremist groups are organizing themselves uh, all over the world now. And uh, and certainly we've seen elements of it in, in Europe, in the United States in, in recent uh, years. So uh, certainly your, your experience and your insights from that period, I think, are extremely relevant now. And then, I mean, obviously you were in Tehran throughout a really fascinating period. Your experience earlier in the decade, um, working particularly focusing on Al-Qaeda, you then went on to do some work in the private sector. How did that experience from um, your work with government, how did that influence your role, your offering, I suppose, to, to private companies working in the security space? Yeah. So in 2011, my six-year posting in Iran was Definitely, oh, we couldn't get extended anymore. I was also just turning 39. And I wanted, I knew I wanted to leave the government after a decade working for it in, you know, do some other work in the private sector. And I knew that I'd need to be done before I turned 40. So in a way, me leaving Iran was the last possible moment uh, for me to be you know, logically leaving the government. But also in 2011, I had two developments that helped that transition. So if you may remember in 2010, 
the UK passed a very landscape making um, legislation um, called the UK Bribery Act, which led into an explosion of private industry consultancy services, in particular, as far as due diligence, know your customer and sanctions risk assessments were concerned. That was helpful for me. And secondly, of course, starting in 2011, the Obama administration, uh, in cooperation at that time with the European Union, decided to significantly increase their sanctions pressure on Iran to get them to the negotiation table later on. Uh, and so me just having left the country, knowing a lot about the sanctions, which I just have right before I left, and uh, speaking Farsi, of course, there was quite a few opportunities to help European companies to move their assets out of Iran as quickly as possible without breaking any of the emerging sanctions provisions. So that kept me, kept me uh, quite busy. And incidentally, during that phase, uh, uh, I met Mark Wallace and David Ibsen who later then or now are the heads of CDP for the first time. And we worked on some of those issues together. Fascinating. I mean, um, there's a lot of serendipity in your tale, isn't there? <laughs> um, in terms of the timing of different different stages and uh, and different activities in your uh, professional career. I, I think you, you, you mentioned um, how you, you came to know the founders of the Counter Extremism Project and obviously your work subsequent to that with the UN Security Council, I think, is extremely relevant to the work that you're doing with CEP today as well. So I think initially you joined the the monitoring team, the ISIL like Al-Qaeda and the Taliban sanction monitoring team as an expert. Tell us a little bit about that and, uh, and the sort of work that you were doing with the UN Security Council. Yeah, um, the monitoring team is, is less of uh, joining like a job. It's an appointment by the Security Council on the suggestion of governments. It's the main advisory team of the United Nations Security Council on global sanctions targeting ISIL, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. It's composed of 10 experts from 10 different countries, five of which are always from the permanent members of the Security Council. Um, during, during, because of the nature of the subject, they're looking at ISIL, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, global connections and financial streams, the team is currently still the only part of the UN that actually has an explicit mandate to cooperate with intelligence services um, all around the world. So my, my professional experience working in that area and my experience, of course, working on Al-Qaeda were quite a good fit. And that's why, why I got elected by the council to that position. Of course, during my time with the monitoring team until 2018, and especially then as my time as the coordinator um, coincides, with the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant in Iraq and Syria and beyond them since 2014. Of course, that necessitated, uh, because there was an explosion of terrorist activity and uh, a, a group that then uh, at one point uh, occupied and controlled nearly as much territory as Great Britain and nearly as many people in that territory, that, that required a major change and adjustment of the global sanctions regime, which the team advises the Security Council on to really take care of new emerging issues that we didn't have in that veracity beforehand, such as travel and return of foreign terrorist fighters and what to do with their data when they enter airplanes and when they cross borders or uh, the industrial scale production and sale of oil. No terrorist organization had done fun before or the industrial scale looting, uh, smuggling and selling on the, on the black market of cultural Heritage, as well as something that CT, CP still focuses on, the really um, ramping up of the misuse of online tools by the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. And because due to the intimate connection that the team has with the decision makers in the countries that are represented in the Security Council, the mandate is time limited. They want to make sure that the 10 members always have fresh eyes 
on emerging challenges. So when my five years were over in January 2018, because I knew David and Mark, I had kept in touch with CEP since the organization was founded in 2015 through their New York office. I immediately joined CEP. And that certainly was was uh, was also a serendipitous occurrence. I think obviously the vast array of experience and and the broad range of themes and topics that you've touched on through your career are are all extremely relevant to the work of the Counter Extremism Project. But I suppose one of the things, and you've just touched on it there in the context of your work with the EU and Security Council, is the whole area of, of funding and financing terrorist operations. It is really the, the lifeblood behind these movements. It's what keeps them alive. It's the oxygen that they require. And I think you are uniquely placed to, to really get under the bonnet, if you like, to really understand uh, what's happening and how to strangle that supply of cash to to many of these organizations. Uh, Your knowledge of the sanction system is just one example, but I mean, I know you've looked really deeply at cryptocurrencies, you've looked at at illicit trade, you've looked at anti-money laundering, and you've produced a prolific amount of work in this area in terms of research. Um, So that's what I would like to maybe delve into a little bit more with you right now, because it is as relevant today as it has ever been uh, in the context of of the mobilization and the proliferation of terror, terrorism and terrorist organizations. So, I mean, where to begin with terrorist financing is probably the question. I mean, you look at a wide range of areas and you have a very good helicopter view. But from your perspective, if you look globally at the phenomenon of terrorist financing, what would you identify as the main sources of cash for these organizations, generally speaking? I know they differ, but what ought to be the target policymakers and governments? Yeah, I mean, if you talk about terrorism financing, you know, I always talk about assets because it's more than cash. It's also weapons, ammunition, mm-hmm. other materials that they need. Um, but it's a extremely broad field. So it's actually very useful to conceptually order that a little bit, right? And so there are three really Three basic models of counterterrorism financing, which is intimately, of course, connected to the structure of the organization for which the financing is conducted. So the first one is what I call uh, terror organizations with state-like structures. Examples here would be, of course, Hezbollah, but also Al-Shabaab in Somalia uh, or ISIL prior to 2018-19, so when they still had the physical caliphate. So these groups need large-scale, reliable and redundant financial income streams since their financial needs are not just covering the perpetration of violence, but also, you know, they have social services, they control territory, they, in, you know, in ISIS case, they manage entire cities, right? So they um, have financial needs that are very unique as far as terrorist organizations is concerned. And therefore, because they are large scale, um, there's usually a very centralized financial uh, structure where the funds flow to and from. Uh, and it's fairly tightly controlled. Income streams, of course, here can be just about anything you can imagine. So there are economic activities. Hezbollah is involved in the economy in uh, in Lebanon. Uh, Al-Shabaab does run several companies, has apparently some shares also in the harbor in Mogadishu. There is extortion, or what the organization always calls taxes, which is nothing else but, you know, since they're not state organizations, extorting businesses and, and individuals. There's also criminal activities such as the transportation or in the case of Hezbollah, even the production of drugs. If you look at hashish 
in Lebanon, he would be hard-pressed to have a joint that is not made by Hezbollah. And of course, the donation. Therefore, yeah, these large-scale financial operations also involve, in a professional manner, services such as professional money laundering operations and sophisticated effort to avert sanctions. The second funding typology really is the funding of networks. So examples here, of course, ISIL since 2019, Al-Qaeda since 2002, but also the transnational violent right-wing extremist network here. The funding activities are far more localized than it would be in the state-like structures because there is the network uh, has not very few financial transactions to a center or from the center. The center basically has operational control sometimes, but mainly is about the brand maintenance of the of the ideology. The financial here, the activities here are very much focused on what is possible in the area where the affiliate or the part of the network is operating. This could be professional criminal activities. There is a extremely professional large-scale kidnapper ransom structure of Abu Sayyaf as a Al-Qaeda affiliate in the Philippines, intimate connections of terrorist networks with criminal smuggling networks, West Africa, of course. I saw the crime terror nexus is a really helpful concept here. And of course, here too, donations play a role and much greater role then they play in the central structure, which has other larger industry. And then finally, there's the lone actor phenomenon. It's the last and most difficult from a combating financing of terrorism activity, because here the lone actor is a bit of a misnomer because very few of those lone actors are actually like the Unabomber, real, actually lonely individuals with no social contacts. Usually lone actors have a social network that enables them before the attack. But the financing aspects of this are truly lone, hyper, hyper localized, simply geared towards the perpetration of the violence of that one terror attack that the actor is planning. If you look at Andreas Breivik, years before his attack in 2011 in Norway, where he bombed the government building and then went to Utoya to murder dozens of young social democratic politicians in Norway, he had financed this by himself, no outside help, partly through economic activities, but also credit card fraud and tax evasion. And it's really hard because no transactions take part, no purchases take part unless they are directly related to the attack. To detect this with the existing combating financing terrorism mechanisms, unless you know the individual is radicalized, otherwise it looks like normal economic activity, or in the worst case, normal in inverted comma criminal activity. So the focus on the individual is 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 really key, unless you have bombing attacks where it comes to purpose uh, purchases of very telling precursors for bomb-making material. But even then, you need really high, high uh, awareness among the people who are, the, who are selling these chemicals that this may be bomb attack. Work once in 2015 in Germany where a, a bomb attack was averted because a lady at the cashier at a, a home store realized that there was a little bit too much ammonium peroxide being purchased by a Turkish couple and they wanted to make pipe bombs out of it. But that was more luck than, than anything else. So lone actor is really a difficult uh, typology here. It, it certainly sounds like uh, the, the first two um, are much, much easier and much more likely to be targeted by policymakers and coordinated international activity. Do you detect a great difference between the funding mechanisms from terrorist or extremist groups from an ideological perspective? So do you see a difference, for example, between Islamist organizations and how they go about their business as compared to, for example, a, a far right? Well, terrorism financing is always a game of opportunities, right? So obviously the current um, financial mechanism that controls 
our defense against terrorism financing is not in, if you look through the regulations, defined as Islamist extremist terrorism financing mechanisms, but they had those in mind. The problem with right-wing extremism or right-wing terrorism financing is that there was no pressure on those financial activities. And there still, to a large extent, is no pressure on those financial activities. So they were able to have a larger share of actual open financial activities that no Islamist extremist or terrorism organization would ever dare to do, such as, as we have identified in our report at the end of last year, which we CEP wrote uh, upon commission of the German Federal Foreign Office, you have events, large-scale festivals where people actually come in the open to listen to art uh, right rock bands um, or mixed martial arts tournaments. Um, you have the sale of merchandise openly online, primarily fan closing either for the writing extremist bands or, or the mixed martial art teams openly done in support of, of right-wing extremist groups online and donations, where again, the pressure on those groups to not receive those donations is nowhere equal to what we see at the moment at the Islamist terrorism space. So it's more a question of opportunities rather than methodologies that, that these groups rule. If there would be the same pressure, we would very quickly see similar systems in the right-wing extremist space as well. Yeah. I think we're certainly seeing the attention of policymakers increasingly turning on to extremist groups that are not necessarily Islamist extremist organizations or terrorist organizations. So we probably will begin to see a change in emphasis and, and perhaps more controls as time goes on. And another related point is the role that certain states play both advertently and inadvertently, you know, maybe uh, deliberately ambiguous attitudes from certain governments or, you know, just weak regulation, you know, insufficient attention given to um, either to anti-money anti laundering legislation or countering financial terrorist mechanisms. Do you see that as being a big problem? I mean, on our last podcast, we discussed with Sir Ivor Roberts the real um, gaps in the system in uh, East Africa. Uh, you mentioned West Africa a while ago. I guess there are certain regions that are more exposed for one reason or another. Yeah, look, I mean, first of all, um, combating the finance of terrorism is a constant arms race, right? As soon as there's mechanisms that are new, the terror finances adjust. So we have to uh, get away from the conception that terrorism finances are simplistically acting individuals. They can be extremely sophisticated guys. And that's why it is really regrettable if, if some uh, governments around the world take a little bit of an ambiguous role as far as these controls are concerned. You know, some for maybe political reasons or ideological reasons, some for more um, economic financial reasons. Uh, controls always are uh, lowering the ease of business in your country. But any gaps and loopholes that exist in the even implementation of the global mechanisms to combat the financing of terrorism, which incidentally also is a good counter tax evasion and counter money laundering mechanism, is of course immediately being exploited by these terror finances. I, I read the report of Sir, uh, Sir Ivor and it's absolutely fantastic because it gives a 360 degree view of the situation on the ground in that region. However, uh, this region is not particularly special as far as these mechanisms are concerned because this is just a very good, very obvious example of where, where the actual problem lies. And that's weak or non-existent governance and the prevalence of conflict. So if you look at other regions with similar issues, Syria, Afghanistan comes to mind, some parts of South Africa, uh, South America, West Africa I've already mentioned, 
now increasingly Central Africa, yeah, um, but also parts of Southeast Asia, uh, you see similar mechanisms. Yeah? So the, it is always a balance between the ability of a government to function efficiently and effectively for its population and the growth of terrorism. And when you have a growth of terrorism and a growth of grievances, you also obviously have a growth of opportunity for terrorism financing. So in this way, it is a fantastic example to showcase what happens if you have near total breakdown of uh, governance mechanisms for a prolonged period of time in a particular region in the world. But it's not East Africa that's the problem. It's the lack of governance that's the problem. Yeah. I mean, as you said earlier, I think it all comes down to opportunity and uh, and certain environments, poor governance, ambiguous attitudes. Uh, it's a combination, but that creates opportunity. And uh, when the opportunity exists, these organizations uh, thrive. Another perhaps newer, less understood opportunity are new technologies, financial technologies in particular. And I know that you have particularly focused in recent times on the opportunity to exploit uh, new and emerging financial technologies. What have you seen in your research around cryptocurrencies in particular? And do you see them as posing a, a significant opportunity for these groups? Uh, yes. So first, let me put that into context. So if you look at the transfer mechanisms for terrorist financing today, obviously, you still have a massive amount of money that gets transferred via other means than cryptocurrencies, in particularly the Havala system, a thousand-year-old transfer system that really operates between the trust that uh, is between two actors in two individual countries, where you pay in in one country and they pay out in the other country, and then they settle the account between the two. You also have, particularly if you have state-like structures like Hezbollah, the use of the formal financial market as a continuing threat. So you do not transfer millions and millions of dollars in a sustained way without ever touching the formal financial system. So what I'm saying about cryptocurrencies now should not be taken as this being the primary transfer mechanism, but it is an emerging and growing threat because this technology allows the total encryption and therefore anonymity of users that use this technical value transfer mechanism. Everyone argues the transactions are obviously publicly recorded on the blockchain because this value transfer mechanism is not connected to any state structure, it's not controlled by central banks. So trust between the seller and the buyer, if you want to, or the sender and the receiver has to be established in a different way because no bank or government is guaranteeing that the transaction is actually going to work. And that is because of the publicity of the transaction, which is also nice and fine. You can analyze that and that's all very helpful. But for terrorism financing, you need to connect the money to the terrorism issue. And that is most of the times done via the identity of the individuals, which remain encrypted. So with technical tools such as blockchain analysis, you can reach a mathematical statistical approximation if that, you know, to the identity of that particular individual who is the sender or the receiver, but you cannot prove it unless the sender or a receiver is stupid enough to actually publish their Bitcoin or cryptocurrency wallet publicly somewhere in the internet saying, this is mine. Then, of course, you have to prove. So that is really the advantage while they're using this. And the criminals as well as terrorists, by the way, and criminals far more than terrorists at this point. But as far as I can see, and as far as the research has shown and investigations and court cases around the world have shown, is really five mechanisms that are used um, that, that are used by terrorists when they when they touch cryptocurrencies. Raise funds. So send me a donation in you know, privacy coin Monero or the most famous uh, cryptocurrency Bitcoin. Obviously, transfer funds, which is the whole idea of the technology, but also the store funds because cryptocurrency is not a 
equally regulated value asset storage and transfer mechanisms around the world. There are jurisdictions where it's not regulated at all or under-regulated. So I can store my funds there. Even if they are seen as terrorism funds, there is no legal possibility for that government to seize or freeze my funds. So it's a very good storage mechanism. Alternative payment mechanisms, which is a growing concern as far as the online economic activities of extreme right-wing organizations are concerned. I told you about the online stores. If Visa, other credit card providers or PayPal no longer provide the services, immediately they switch to pay me in Monero, pay me in Bitcoin, pay me in any other cryptocurrency, and it works. And then in one particular interesting scenario, cryptocurrencies were used to cover up criminal behavior, in that case, credit card fraud, which generated the funds that were then sent uh, for the financing of terrorism. So, you know, in a way, anything you can imagine the technology can do is misused because the technology itself is not good or bad. It's just as any other technology, and I'm sure we'll talk about social media in a minute, Mm. it is all about the awareness that whatever you create can also be used for nefarious purposes. So it's the same here. Of course, when regulating those new technologies, which give at least the hope of greater financial inclusion, i.e., people's access to a financial system that they don't have when there is no banking infrastructure, when there is no physical infrastructure where people can go to a bank or when the identity evaluation systems are not as strong in countries that they would be able to transact with other countries in the world. These promises need to be kept, but that doesn't mean the technology cannot be regulated at all. And the FATF and the EU have done great strides in the last couple of years, in particular now. The FATF has just started its public consultation on its updated guidance And if everything stays the same uh, the way the draft is now, I think it's a really significant step forward because all of the most problematic aspects of cryptocurrencies, tumblers and mixers that make even the transactions now much harder to follow, privacy coins, which absolutely encrypt everything connected to the individual, so no chance even for blockchain analysis to find out who is who, non-custodial wallets and exchanges, software that you download from the internet where you no longer need to get an exchange or wallet service provider that can be regulated when you do your transactions. All of these new, very problematic aspects are considered red flags in the guidance uh, of FATF, which means the use of this is very likely then connected with nefarious activities, at least in the view of the FATF. And I think that is a very, very important signal. So if this guidance is uh, adopted as it stands, I think we made a big step forward. Yeah, I mean, thank you. So I think I think a lot of people find this really complex and almost a switch off. So I think you've you've actually really articulated very clearly the the five scenarios by which it can be abused or manipulated potentially by not just terrorists, as, as you said, by by organized crime and other groups, but for the loopholes to be closed off, it really does require international, global coordination and cooperation. The initiative of the FATF and the European Commission and and other uh, international organisations is is key. But um, I think we probably have quite a long way to go. It also strikes me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's probably quite difficult at this point in time to really quantify just how much cryptocurrencies can be exploited um, or are currently being exploited. Yes, but we do have a growing body of uh, court case law. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can see from some of the indictments, primarily so far in the United States, um, that we're not talking about particularly small sums. If you remember in August last year, um, the United States for, uh, seized or ordered the seizure 
of uh, 400 cryptocurrency accounts, all linked directly and indirectly to terrorism, with a total value of several million US dollars. So we're not talking about small scale, you know, particularly specialist uh, involvement in this. And there's just a, a new uh, report from Vice out a couple of days ago, um, which again outlines how diligently groups, uh, especially terrorist groups still operating in Syria, are using this mechanism to raise and transfer funds. As well as other humanitarian organizations, you know this is a this is a mechanism, as I said, uh, that can be used for good and for very bad purposes. So it's a question of of finding the right balance between keeping the mechanism's functionality intact and in installing appropriate safeguards, so at least the worst of the worst can be prevented. Doing nothing is really not an option. Yeah, for sure. And uh, certainly, I think uh, regulators have cottoned onto that. Uh, I think we can expect. A lot of evolution uh, in terms of how it's dealt with in the in the years ahead. You mentioned technologies that can be used for bad and good, and that's probably a good segue into uh, the role of social media in all of this. Um, I know y- you and I and and others in CEP have worked over several years now uh, around the whole area of exploitation of tech platforms, social media platforms by extremist groups and terrorist groups. Um, and you've published, again, research in this area. But I think it'll be interesting just to, to understand from your research, specifically the impact of social media platforms on terrorist financing and, and where it interplays with, with all of this. Yeah, it's an indispensable tool, to be totally honest. I mean, as they are early adopters of cryptocurrencies, as it is wonderfully well documented, not just by CEP, but by many organizations, in the last couple of years, the whole space of uh, social media platforms and messenger services is an operational tool of terror organizations. I'm not saying this technology was created, therefore, but there were no safeguards in place to prevent that either. Yeah, I have the feeling there's a little bit of an understanding growing when, when it comes to bomb-making videos and creating videos and organizing attacks that the platforms seem to getting close to actually admitting that this happens on their platform to, you know, formulate this diplomatically. This was used to be very different a couple of years ago where they said none of this is happening or it's minuscule what happens on our platforms. They seem to be taking a little bit more responsibility where they're absolutely, utterly and completely unprepared is the misuse for the purpose of terrorism financing. And this is very obvious, and that's why I wrote the report last year. On the back, by the way, of a report of 2019 of the research network of the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, the big industry association, where you have Google and you have Facebook and you have Twitter and you have YouTube working to counter terrorism, their research network, their research advisor, clearly, loudly, and in detail warned them in 2019 that their services are misused for terrorism financing, including some typologies of what's going on and how to counter these recommendations. So at the beginning of last year, I thought, well, you know, biggest companies have been warned by their own research advisors. There must be some progress. And that's why I wrote that report, simply testing whether the situation that described in the 2019 report had changed until 2020. Unfortunately, it hadn't changed at all. When I wrote the report in April, the biggest social media companies did not mention counterterrorism financing in their terms of services at all. It's just not mentioned. It says no terrorist activity on our platform, but terrorism financing not. While they mention money laundering. So obviously they understand that their platforms are perfectly useful to conduct illegal financial activities, but terrorism financing didn't even bear mention, which means in their monitoring system, no one is looking at the terrorism financing. That includes, by the way, the biggest crowdfunding platforms where you would think 
they would by themselves get the idea that if I'm building a platform for someone to raise funds, that bad actors may run, want to raise funds on my platform as well. Also, hardly any mention. If there's a mention, it's just basically say, if you're terrorist, please don't use our platform. No idea how they find out whether I'm a terrorist or not. I don't think if I'm a terrorist and want to use a crowdfunding platform, I'm very likely to tell them that I am. So, you know, defense mechanisms are woefully inadequate and very unsurprising then, once we actually tested whether the most known ISIL, Al-Qaeda, terrorism finances, the ones that are on the United Nations Security Council sanctions list, the biggest ones, the most famous ones on the list for quite a while, whether they have profiles, we checked that up and we, of course, we found profiles on several of the big global platforms. So there is really a lot of catching up that has to be done. And I've not even started to explain the whole role that social media plays for the financing of right-wing extremist violent organizations, which have their web shops, not hosted by Facebook, but advertised through Facebook. So you know, there is an intimate connection here as well. There is no big player in the financial business and we at CEP Germany at the moment looking at the financial activities of the violent extremist right-wing networks in Germany, um, all of those who have shops also have a social media profile on all of the big platforms. There's a bit of a transition to V-contactors or a more permissible Russian environment, but they still have the big global platforms because that's where you get most customers. Uh, we don't see them very much inhibited, although it's quite easy to find out who they are on, on those platforms in the active. So there's a lot of catching up to do from the industry side. Absolutely, huge amount. And I think um, the point you make there about um, not necessarily hosting uh, a fundraising page, but being in a position to advertise it unfettered on social platforms is quite incredible. And I think will probably shock uh, many people. So uh, certainly, I think as as we as we continue to focus our efforts on the online presence of extremist and terrorist organizations, this is going to be a really key area for the future. Hans, you've really taken us through a wide range of aspects of terrorist financing and it's it's really fascinating. So thank you for that. I mean, I suppose how I would like to um, draw our discussion to a conclusion is to, to glean your thoughts on how we can and how policymakers and regulators can prioritize now steps that can be taken to try to you know curb the chain and and I suppose suck life a little bit out of some of this financing activity. If you were given a blank page, shall we say, where would you start? What would the priorities be? What do you think needs to happen next? Um, look, there is not one priority. There are what I would call legacy issue, right? So there is still a lack of availability of beneficial ownership information, not just uh, in several countries, but around the world. So you don't know who actually earns what money if a company is set up. You only know the managing director normally. So that is not just a thousand financing issue, but also a massive tax evasion issue, of course. Um, then there is uh, Havala systems that I mentioned, mostly unregulated to a handful of countries only, regulate them as financial service providers. That can be and should be rectified. And you know, in the old offline space, hard cash transactions is something that I really cannot understand why most countries have no limit. Why is it possible in Germany or in many other countries to pay unlimited amount of cash in hard cash? Why would anyone want to pay hundreds of thousands of euros in hard cash at any point for any reason? 
There has to be a limit because hard cash is virtually untraceable. And the go-to thing for anyone wanting to launder money or financing terrorism or other criminal activities. So that's the legacy issue. Secondly, of course, we have the new technologies and we discussed this uh, in, in great length and there are efforts being made. And thirdly, really, we do have this new issue of right-wing extremist and terrorist financing. For a very long time, until recently, really, the last two years with the Christchurch attack in 2019, it really starts. The issue was seen as a domestic security issue, not as a terrorism issue, certainly not as a transnational terrorism issue that has any similarity with international or global Islamist terrorism. I think we've shown quite well in our report last year that the transnational aspects of this movement are at this point key to its functionality. It's no longer a hyper-nationalist movement as such or network or networks as such. It is far beyond that by now. Because of this, also the financial activities have never been looked at through the counterterrorism financing lens, but only through a criminal lens. However, since webshops don't do anything or is ostensibly illegal, it's not illegal to sell a T-shirt online. Since festivals are ostensibly not illegal, it's not illegal to listen to music or follow a mixed martial art event. There is very little that inhibits these financial activities. So what we need to do now is, number one, collect and analyze data because we are well behind if you compare this with other terrorism phenomena when it comes to right-wing extremism. There is very little understanding both in academia, but also within government, of how is this actually working and how much money is actually made. So we are at CEP Germany doing this for Germany now, and then hopefully later in the year, we're looking at the transatlantic and transnational connections outside Germany to other European countries and the United States. Um, in parallel, the FATF does its first ever project looking at that phenomenon from a regulatory side. So collecting information from member states on what's going on and how can this be prevented. Once we've done that, the second big issue here is then to take the existing CFT, the combating financing of terrorism uh, mechanism, and look what is directly applicable. As I said, it was not legally mentioned as combating Islamist financing terrorism, but it is with that structure in mind. What is applicable and what needs to be adjusted? Because the financial activities, because the opportunities are different, is slightly different on the right-wing extremist side than on the Islamist terrorism side at the moment. So that's the two steps that immediately, I think, should be taken are underway to a certain extent as far as the FTF is concerned. And we at CEP and CEP Germany, obviously, intend to play a public role in both those steps. We're collecting and analyzing data on the activities, but we're also already working through recommendations on how the existing combating mechanisms should be adjusted uh, to also effectively or more effectively disrupt the activities uh, of this kind of terrorist phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the research that you're conducting is hugely important, hugely valuable, and I hope will inform uh, the next steps from policymakers and regulators in the very near future. Hans, you have taken us through a, a tour de force. Thank you so much. It's been a really fascinating discussion for me and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Thank you for making it comprehensible, but also extremely lively and interesting. So I really do appreciate your time and look forward to talking to you again very soon. It's both a pleasure and an honor to be on the podcast and to discuss all this issue with you. I'm looking forward to the next time. Have a good afternoon. Our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. 